Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. It is what it is. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that, that's, those are dark days for justice when you see that kind of, that kind of conduct. Basically, they found me and they built a case around me. Not facts, but they built their evidence to make it look like me. With respect to Norm Wolfinger having been, at first, an assistant state attorney with me in the mid-70s, and then being the chief assistant public defender in my office for four years before being elected state attorney and going to that side, and being familiar with Juan Ramos's case, and being familiar with jailhouse snitches, and being familiar with the dog, I was somewhat surprised at Mr. Wolfinger's position and tenacity in which he fought these cases in the future. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast. Okay, so there's been quite a bit to digest over these first few episodes. And before we continue talking about Wilton Dedge and his reacclimation into society after 22 years in prison, and before we dive into all the other similar cases we know about, I've long wondered what the atmosphere was like around the state attorney's office in those days. The 1980s, where it seemed as if prosecutors had a free hand to work these cases any way they wanted. Apparently, I'm not that far off. The state attorney during this time was a man named Doug Cheshire. Now, he passed away in 1997, and I never had a chance to meet him or observe him in action. From what I've heard, he was the guy who got elected, but preferred hunting and fishing to the courtroom. The other thing is, we had a state attorney whose name uh, was uh, Douglas Cheshire. Douglas Cheshire was a mental midget. In fact, he he literally shot himself in the foot, you know, with a gun. Did he really? He did. Using state fund acquired firearms and so he was called walking small and squatty body if somebody said i've got to talk to doug about this you realize the guy's a moron because if you had a problem you go inside his office when you came out your problem was bigger he was that dumb and and i'm I'm not joking about that that was former prosecutor sam bardwell who says he quit working there over what was going on, especially with the state prosecutors using the fraudulent dog handler over and over again. In fact, he used the word repulsive to describe what was going on in that office. Others, like criminal defense attorney Greg Eisenmenger, who started out in the public defender's office, said the problems ran much deeper than Cheshire himself. Rather, he says, it had a lot to do with how the office was set up to operate. Doug Cheshire had his office set up in a very unique way. Uh, He was very close with Buzzy Patterson, and Buzzy was the gatekeeper to Doug. So no one got to talk with Doug unless they went through Buzzy. I would say that everybody knew that the last voice 
that Cheshire listened to was Buzzy Patterson. Now that doesn't mean that he also didn't listen to his prosecutors. I mean, he did. He had some really good prosecutors. You know, Norm Wolfinger was, you know, a prosecutor at that time. But there was a lot of frustration. I mean, one of the things that happened from a political point of view is that you saw J.R. Russo come from the prosecutor's office, Norm Wolfinger uh, come from the prosecutor's office, Glenn Craig come from the prosecutor's office, and they all came to the public defender's office. And that's the same time that I joined uh, the public defender's office. And one of the reasons that these people sort of made a wholesale career change over to the defense side was because of the frustrations on how Doug Cheshire ran his office. And that's really rare, right? Because I've been covering courts in a way here for many years, and I don't think I can name one prosecutor that has gone to the public defender's office. Uh, it, in my experience, it's very rare to see uh, prosecutors go to the PD's office. Now, it's uh, significantly less rare to see them go into private practice and to go to the defense side, you know, through private practice, and that's fairly common. Uh, but to see the movement, a governmental movement, uh, from prosecutor's office to public defender's office, yeah, is very rare. I, I think that it reflected, in large part, the fact that these experienced prosecutors were not happy with the way that Doug Cheshire was running his office. And I think you had a, a number of people quite honestly, myself included, at that point in time that were thinking about running, you know, against Doug Cheshire. And ultimately, Norm Wolfanger decided to run for the office. And those of us that were friends of Norm and knew him and knew the kind of background that he had, you know, kind of rallied behind him. The problem with having Buzzy Patterson running the office is that he was not an attorney. His official title was Executive Director of the State Attorney's Office. The rules have been changed since, and that could never happen today. Patterson, as I understand it, was very capable, smart, and calculating, but he was a former homicide detective. And to hear longtime defense attorney Joe Mitchell tell it, that breeds all types of problems because prosecutors are supposed to vet cases and not just prosecute every case brought their way. The office was basically run by a guy by the name of Buzzy Patterson. Buzzy Patterson was a—he's a, a non-attorney. He was a homicide investigator with the sheriff's department. I think it was Jake Miller who was a sheriff. Doug Doug Cheshire was uh, absent most of the time. He really didn't run the office on a day-to-day basis, and it was run primarily by Buzzy Patterson. Now, I think what happened is this: and if you want to talk about protocol, which doesn't seem to exist anymore between law enforcement and the prosecutor's office. And that is, the police go and make the arrest. The prosecutors are not supposed to rubber stamp the police. They're supposed to scrutinize the work of the police and then do whatever justice calls for within the legal system. Now, most of the time, they're going to validate what the police officers do because what they did was right. They're going to validate correct police procedure. The problem there was when you have somebody who's running the office, who's a police officer, basically, law enforcement officer, somebody who knows all these people because he used to work with them. You don't get that heightened scrutiny that you would get in in an office where there's not all this familiarity between the law enforcement officers and the prosecutor's office. So that was the climate that they were in, and the pressure was on the prosecutors to get convictions because whatever the police officers did, investigating officers did, was pretty clear it needed to be validated. 
So if the police made a decision that X or Y or Z did something, it's not going to go up there to the state attorney's office on a, on a level playing field where it gets scrutinized. Because as a person who was high up in the state attorney's office once told me, is that way to make the law enforcement community, which as you know is a very powerful thing in this community, the way to make them happy is to always validate them. You're not going to get, you're not going to be popular with them if you validate them 95 out of 100 times. They want validation 100% of the time. And so they got more validation on some of these cases from the state attorney's office than they did, than they should have, rather than giving all this a bunch of scrutiny. Because I can't believe that in today's setting, even as favorable as the state attorney's office is toward law enforcement, that this sort of thing would happen. Now, maybe that's Pollyanna and not naivety, but I don't see that. Okay, so during this time period, in the early 1980s, the cops would make an arrest. The information would then be sent to the state attorney's office, and a cop, not a lawyer, ultimately decided whether it should be prosecuted or not. Cheshire was never around, and that left a lot of leeway to the more experienced prosecutors to, well, prosecute cases. The chief prosecutor during this time was Dean Moxley, who later became a judge and still sits on the bench in a retired capacity when called upon. It's interesting to hear Sam Bardwell describe what Moxley was like back then. Now then the next thing was the structure of the state attorney's office. Moxley. John D. Moxley was a senior trial attorney. That's kind of a misnomer. What he really was, was the most experienced homicide prosecutor, and he got to pick and choose what cases he wanted to do. He was given a very nice office, his own secretary, and his own investigator, and as near as I could tell. He had didn't have to beg for assets. He had whatever he needed. Uh, Dean Moxley was a, you know, there are several different classes of persons. He was a personal sort of guy. He went to some nice schools. He was very knowledgeable. You know, there are people who are knowledgeable because of perspiration, other by inspiration. He was a very hard-working guy, but he was not anywhere near as gifted a mind as he was attributed to because he worked very, very hard. He kept volumes of cases, and he was a zealot, a true zealot and he was given this responsibility. What exactly did this mean for the prosecutor's office during that time? I mean, other than they were presenting fake evidence to convict innocent men. I spoke with a familiar voice, Tom Davis, who you may recognize from season one. Actually, how can you not recognize him with that voice? Anyway, Tom, if you remember, is a retired FDLE profiler but he also worked for a while during that time as an investigator for the state attorney's office. There was a lot of dissension. I will tell you this, just as a sidebar, my observation was there was no love lost between Mr. Moxley, Mr. Patterson, and Mr. Cheshire. And, but I would say, again, based on my knowledge and, and observation, uh, Mr. Moxley was the most seasoned or one of the most seasoned prosecutors who got results. Results meaning convictions. And we're back to the thing of as conviction rate got 
has justice got lost in conviction rate. And there it is. Justice getting lost. What was more important, justice or the conviction? We'll dig even deeper into exactly how prosecutors, like Dean Moxley, were able to win so many weak cases in a little bit. The result, of course, was the tragedy of sending innocent men to prison. But back to Wilton Dedge. At the time of his release, without any knowledge of other cases that would soon come to light, one might assume that the prosecutors made a mistake. It happens, right? Of course, you'd have to believe that they were fooled by the dog handler and were unaware that he was being investigated elsewhere, including right here in Brevard County, where, just before testifying against Dedge, Preston failed a simple tracking test that was put to him by a local judge. So we'll get more into Preston, the dog handler, later, including a story on how a Native American shaman supposedly cursed one of his dogs. What I'll say now is that he was a former Pennsylvania state trooper who made his living traveling around the country posing as an expert witness in criminal cases. We know that he was finally exposed as a liar and a fraud, and one can only wonder how many innocent people he helped put away. In Brevard County alone, we know he worked on about 100 cases, including 16 capital cases. That included Gary Bennett, Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, Juan Ramos, and others. I've checked with the state record keepers in Tallahassee, as well as court clerks in several counties, but court cases are not searchable by witness names. The only way to truly know what the scope of his destruction was would be to go and pull every single court case from 1980 to 1984 in the counties where I know he worked. And that would only be scratching the surface. He also worked cases in Virginia, Arizona, Ohio, New York, Puerto Rico, and elsewhere. Here's Bardwell again, talking about what he felt about the prosecutors who used Preston. I, I started at the state attorney's office at 10-16-78. I left there 4-30-82. Um, the reason I just plain quit, I couldn't deal with it. This was at the height of the, uh, of the activities that I find personally repulsive. So I knew at that particular point in time that he was a fraud, a charlatan, and a liar, and that nobody who utilized him to do lineups had any personal integrity or, or rudimentary knowledge of experimental design. And so I then realized that uh, there's some evil things working here. So again, in the Dedge case, even if you believed the Preston dog tracking nonsense, then you'd also have to believe that the jailhouse snitch, Clarence Zaki, wound up on Wilton's van by sheer coincidence. Maybe Wilton really was the unluckiest guy in the world. But if that was the case, wouldn't it have been cool for someone with the prosecutor's office to reach out and and maybe apologize? I've gotten I've never gotten an apology for any of them. Somebody told me that one of them felt bad, but I haven't, you know, nobody's come to me. Nobody's apologized. No. Not to my face. People who know nothing about my case, people that I meet, like when I was traveling with uh, After Innocence, they're like, oh, I am so sorry. It's not their fault. Right. People from Canada, they're like, oh my God, that must have been a nightmare. I am so sorry it happened to you. It's not your fault. You know, we know whose fault this is. But those people haven't come to me and apologized. I watched a guy 
one of the judges come out and apologize to one of the people being released. That was awesome. It was up north. Yeah. And, you know, it's so bad to say that you're wrong. The reason for that, according to attorney Joe Mitchell, is simple hubris. And it's that arrogance that can trump an otherwise great system. And then the problem is this. And then once again, I'm, this is just my thought on it. We have a great system. It works the over, overwhelmingly amount of the time it works. And what happens to the system sometimes is because it does work so well, they get arrogant. And they just can never say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I might have been wrong. I could have been wrong. There's a possibility I could have been wrong. They get entangled in their own work about have to fight to justify what they did forever. They just can't ever just say, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but on Dillon's case, William Dillon, I don't think that the prosecutor has ever told William Dillon they're sorry. Of course, he's right about no one ever apologizing to William Dillon either. But we'll get there soon. Then you have others like attorney David Menchel, who made the following statements in 2008. Yep, I am a pack rat and I keep absolutely everything. So I had this audio in a drawer in my desk. This audio is from a press conference the day after Dylan was released from prison after 28 years. Menchel, who was the legal director of the Innocence Project of Florida at the time, called on then-Florida Governor Charlie Crist to launch a full investigation into the actions of Brevard County prosecutors because he said Brevard prosecutors used evidence they knew was fabricated and fed information to jailhouse informants to secure convictions, even against innocent men. In, in a lot of wrongful conviction cases, the, the, you know, the, the cause essentially is, is a bunch of well-intentioned people who made a mistake, right? That is the typical wrong, wrongful conviction case. That's not this case. This case, you know, again, I think it's tempting to think, of the, to, to think about this case about the fraudulent dog handler, but, but in a sense, that's not really what this case is about either. This case is about a criminal conspiracy that exists in Brevard County. Strong words indeed. And you know, it was during this time that Norman Wolfinger, the man who replaced Cheshire as the state attorney, could have initiated reversal of these convictions instead of placed roadblocks up at every opportunity. Wolfinger had once been a public defender and knew that the dog stuff was no good. And like Sam Bardwell says, he had plenty of opportunities to do the right thing. And yet... So the dog gets discredited. But I need to tell you about this one thing that's been really disturbing to me. During the period of time in which uh, Cheshire was there, there's old Wolfinger, and he was a public defender. You know, Because right. his friend was the public defender. So... J.R. Russo. So that uh, Wolfinger was personally involved in a dog case. He was personally aware of what that dog could not do. And during his tenure, he had many opportunities to just say, do the right thing. And what he should have done is not only, you know, participated in this project, he should have actively prosecuted, you know, this dog because he got $40,000. And I told people that I'll be personal, special prosecutor, and I'll do it for free. So he knew about that dog and his little underling who 
testifies, oh, well, we facilitated, you know, the DNA testing in the Dedge case. Bullshit. And it wasn't for progression of science that man would still be in jail. So these people will rot in hell if there is such a place. It's funny. I've heard that sentiment more than once working on this podcast. Rot in hell. And one can only imagine what would have become of Dedge if the DNA evidence in his case was too deteriorated to test, like in Gary Bennett's case. Would he still be in prison fighting and trying to live on the inside? Luckily for Dedge, the DNA evidence was not deteriorated, and he was freed in 2004. And it's sad that the true rapist got away with it. So what happens to someone like Wilton Dedge who was locked up for 22 years for something he did not do? How do you start life again in your mid-40s? Well, one way to cope is to keep moving, travel, see the country with some of the $2 million that the state compensated him with, and try to keep the anger and bitterness away. Was it hard for you to get back into society after 22 years? Well, it still is. I mean, people just don't get it. That we're still the young kids that they locked up, but we're in old bodies, and we got more responsibility. Went from basically zero responsibility in prison to living a life, paying bills and worried about insurance and, you know, people have no clue. You can't just throw a person into a full responsibility. So it's, it's taken a while to adapt and, you know, put up with different people, different attitudes. Uh, and, you know, what about technology? I mean, like, was that just mind-boggling when you came out about all the advancements in 20 years? And- well, I'd never had a cell phone until I believe it was 2004 or five, And yeah, used to, you had to go home to use a phone or find a pay phone or wasn't really computers, laptops, smartphones. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out the computer thing. And pay phones. We don't even have those anymore, I don't think. No, nah, I think I've seen traveling around, I might have seen two or three of them. And speaking of traveling, you have you you actually have you know like you've done some traveling these you know over these years, right? I've probably done thirty thousand miles or more, uh, most of the states, uh, Canada, Mexico, and up into Alaska. So I've done quite a bit. Have you found peace, Wilton, or are you still angry about what happened to you? It's there, but. You know, believe me, the anger's there, and I figure if I'm going to be mad all the time, I might as well be back in prison. So I, I try to be happy and try to enjoy myself. It actually hurts when I try to imagine all the things Wilton missed out on because he was wrongfully incarcerated, like marriage and raising a family, and little things like the entire grunge music scene, Seinfeld, Friends, the Bill Clinton era, the O.J. Simpson trial, to simply scratch the surface. In a somewhat ironic, if not funny, twist of fate, Wilton went from one prison immediately to another upon his release in August of 2004, the prison of a Florida hurricane season. Um, you know, what was the like first thing you did, you know, for yourself when you came out? I mean, like, did it, you know, is it like a cheeseburger at McDonald's or is that, you know, what did you? No, actually, we had four hurricanes. One started the next day after I got out, so. I basically kept my mom and dad's generator running because they lost power and cutting limbs down and picking, you know. Oh, was that Charlie? Was that like yeah, Charlie, that was Francis, Jean? in Jean August and... 2004. And like I said, we had like four of them back to back. So, yeah, two weeks, I think my parents were out of power. 
So I build up blisters in my hand from mom wake me up at 2.30 in the morning. Generator stopped. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's basically what I did for a couple weeks after I got out. Yeah. So, and it was probably a good thing. Right, right. You know, I didn't get in no trouble. Well, I mean, I was going to say that, I mean, gee, you know, after 20 years, I probably would want to go and hit every bar in town or something. Yeah, or you'd think. I mean, yeah, everybody thinks they want to do a certain thing, but when you get out, it's totally different. I wasn't thinking about meeting a girl or, believe it or not, um, food was nice, uh, a good home-cooked meal, and just walking around by myself. I love that. Right. Seriously, just looking. The neighborhood changed after two decades. So the Dej exoneration was one of the first really big stories I worked on here at Florida Today. And it would still be a few more years before I would go and interview William Dillon in prison and start to see a pattern. The same pattern we examined last season in Gary Bennett's case. But before Wilton Dedge and Gary Bennett, there was the tragic case of Juan Ramos. I wouldn't really learn about Juan's case until years later. His attorneys were public defenders J.R. Russo and Norman Wolfinger, who of course would later become the state attorney for the 18th Judicial Circuit, which includes Brevard County. Here's what Wolfinger once had to say about the Ramos case. He called it, quote, the weakest murder case I've ever seen. Racism. Absolutely no attempt was made from day one to pin the murder on anyone but the sap, the Cuban. End quote. I still can't understand why Wolfinger would later oppose DNA testing for Dej and Dillon, even though both cases appeared to be carbon copies of the Juan Ramos case. Juan's tragic tale, which includes being imprisoned in a Cuban jail under Fidel Castro, chopping off his own fingers and being part of the 1980 Marielle Boatlift turned even darker a year after he moved to the Space Coast in April of 1983, when his neighbor, Sue Cobb, was found stabbed 17 times with a large knife jammed into her chest. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. The very first trial um, was moved to Sanford uh, on a change of venue. Judge Woodson was the, uh, the judge in the case. Um, we filed, obviously, motions to suppress the dog evidence, which he denied. Um, and the prosecutors were? The prosecutors at the time were Dean Moxley, who was quite fond of dealing with not only the dog in many, many cases, but in feeling comfortable with um, jailhouse um, testimony. And the other prosecutor in the case was Chris White. That was the first time around. The jury deliberated, and they came back with a guilty verdict. They deliberated further on a penalty and came back with a recommended life sentence. And Judge Woodson overrode the recommendation of life and sentenced Juan Ramos to death. And they're cutting deals with rapists and murderers. I mean, what does that tell you, a, a about our state attorney's office? It tells you that they're interested in getting a conviction. They're not interested in justice. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres. And you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. If you like Murder on the Space Coast, we urge you to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. This will make it easier for others to find this podcast and this important story in the future. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast. 
Brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.